Welcome to the next episode of the Petite Polymath. This is your host, Britt Stone, and today we're going to talk about a book I'm pretty excited to discuss, Behold the Dreamers by Mbolo Mbuye. And uh, without further ado, we'll get started. So this is the uh, first novel by Mbolo Mbuye, who is from Cameroon and lives in New York City now. Um, The story is set in 2008, uh, right before the beginning of the financial crisis, and it's focused on two families that are interconnected. Uh, The Edwards, Clark, who is the patriarch with his wife, Cindy. He's an investment banker at Lehman Brothers. They have two sons, Vince and Mighty. And then the Jongas, Jinde, who is the father, Nene, who is his wife, and Leomi, their son. So the Edwards um, are your, you know, kind of prototype of the wealthy white upper class in Manhattan um, of finance money. And they have employed Jinde as a chauffeur for Mr. Edwards Clark. Uh, The interesting thing about the Jongas, however, is that they are not in the States legally. So Nene is on a student visa. She has a hope of becoming a pharmacist. And Jinde has outstayed his visitor's visa um, because they're married. Um, So he doesn't want to to leave. And, and, you know, of course, because of this, um, is in trouble with immigration if he were to get caught because he's outstayed his welcome. So he is now... um, in the process of coming up with a fake asylum um, request to stay in the U.S. And their son, Leomi, born in Cameroon, also illegal, um, but small. So it's not like he's in school and, and, and therefore not a major issue, at least um, at the beginning of the novel. This kind of comes up a little bit later. At any rate, uh, the story is about how the investment, you know, the financial crisis, Um, of that year uh, did not just impact directly those working in those those finance jobs, but the trickle-down effect of how the destabilization of Wall Street impacts the everyday um, American, and particularly the idea of the American dream. You know, is it something that's attainable for everyone, or is that actually not true and is the dream a waste of time and uh it really struck me because 2008 I was in my second to last year of medical school at the beginning of it I guess I would have been my fourth year of medical school so I remember I had friends who were in law school that year they graduated in 2008 and were saying what a crummy time to leave law school because they couldn't find jobs Big law, we're hiring people, but hiring them with a delay. Um, A lot of people couldn't find jobs, uh, even with their JD. And so they were having to get creative about alternative options for what to do with that degree and all of their debt. Um, Medical students wasn't so much an issue. I mean, you know, there's always jobs for doctors. But I, I knew that was a very big problem for my friends that were going the law route. Uh, in addition, I, I had a couple friends who were in banking in New York and were feeling kind of disillusioned, but also felt like they couldn't leave because they were just like, what do I do if, you know, if I, if I don't take this job, like what other alternatives do I have? Or if I walk away from this job, what other alternatives do I have? 
granted, I think for lots of people, their hands were kind of forced and maybe they had an opportunity to do something that they otherwise would not have done um, if that crisis hadn't happened. But that's reality. So back to, to fiction. Um, I really loved this book because I felt it pretty timely. Um, it's amazing how these relationships between these two families um, are very, very kind of expected. You know, you can kind of predict the way that things are going to unfold. But what I also loved about the author is that she does not fall into the trap of making, you know, the Jongas, the illegal immigrants, these perfect human beings that had, you know, no faults and no flaws. And if they could just get straight in America, everything would be perfect. And she didn't make out the Edwards to just be, you know, completely self-absorbed and hateful and arrogant and disconnected. Uh, you really understand the humanity of both of these families and how similar actually they are underneath the class and the ethnic division that they have. And also how, you know, as trite as it sounds, money does not buy happiness, um, that success is a relative term, and that you can feel trapped uh, if you have nothing, and you can feel trapped if you feel like you have to just keep doing what you feel like everyone expects you to do. And this lack of, of true community, um, particularly for the Edwards, you know, who, who are your people? Um, you're so busy forgetting that your family matters. And you're looking for this validation from these outside people who really aren't even necessarily there for you in ways that you need them to be when things really matter. And so they're so isolated um, because they have to keep, keep up appearances. And then with uh, the Janga family, you know, you're not in a country legally. So all these anxieties you have about your, your status, your immigration status, you can't share with very many people either um, because of the, uh, the tenuousness of the situation. And the more people who know and the wrong person who knows, how can that be used against you? And the, the vulnerability of your status uh, was a very striking um, theme that I found was interesting. And not just vulnerability of status for the poor, but vulnerability of status for the wealthy. That how you're perceived is so important. And if that facade uh, falls apart, um, you can be at the top of the heap today and you can be at the bottom tomorrow. And everyone's vying for a piece of you. And so I think for me, it, it allowed you to have a lot of empathy uh, for, for both families, uh, particularly chil the children, how, you know, love of, of your children, wanting your kids to have a better life than you, wanting your children to be happy, to be safe, to be successful, is something that any parent worth their weight and salt feels, regardless of where they're starting. Um, also how... Uh, we can assume so much about people who work for us. We can forget their full humanity or that they, um, they can understand where we're coming from. And not just people who work for us, but particularly even if they look differently. There's a scene where um, in the summer, the Edwards, who of course have a vacation home in the Hamptons, need housekeeping help. And uh, Jindy's wife, Nanny, is hired by Cindy to 
do some housekeeping work for her for the summer. And of course it makes really good money, which is great for them so they can save up. And at one point, Cindy shares some vulnerabilities with her. And as Nanny is, you know, commiserating with her, Cindy says, well, you know, you don't know what it's like. You know, people expect for you to be poor because you're from Africa. And so you don't have to, you don't have the expectation of having more or being someone who comes from something and having to uh, fulfill an expectation that you know how to do the right things and that you have all this confidence and self-assuredness. And, and the funny thing is that if you compare Cindy and Nanny's backgrounds, Nanny actually probably has more understanding of what it's like to have everything and lose it than Cindy has any idea of. But because there's never been a true meeting of equality where I'm seeing you as another human being, not just somebody who works for me that I'm, you know, kind of transferring all of my assumptions about your life on, um, there's a, a gap. And Nanny doesn't correct her. She just kind of lets her believe this lie. It struck me also that I thought a lot about the dynamics between these two families being very similar, as I would imagine, between, you know, dynamics between blacks and whites, um, you know, black domestic workers in the, in the civil rights movement during the 50s and the 60s, or even like the slave and servant interaction with their masters or their bosses, this idea that you're kind of invisible, and so people can act poorly or say whatever they think or feel that they would never say to someone they consider a peer because you, you're there, but you're not really there. And they assume that you're just going to hold their confidence, even though it might not always be in your best interest to do so. And, you know, I mean, I, being a black American, of course, come from, from a stock of particularly women who at some point were domestic workers. My father's mother, before she was a clerk in the hospital, um, cleaned the home of an old white lady in our town, which my grandma's kind of doesn't chat very much about her, her uh, youth at all. It's kind of like you can't get much out of her about what it was like to be a young woman or a child. But I, I just kind of imagine what it must be like. You know, that idea of being a fly on the wall is exactly what these people are. You know, you're the chauffeur, you're the eyes and the ears, you're the maid, you're the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears. And because of that, you often internalize the emotional... Uh, dysfunction of the families that you're that you're working for and I think it, you would have to be completely emotionally detached for that not to impact you in some way um so yeah I mean it's definitely a a very thoughtful portrayal of how interconnected we actually all are and I highly recommend it it was an Oprah's book club novel. You know, Oprah's always poaching the good things. Um, and in my past lives, I usually try to avoid books that are on Oprah's book club list because I think, ah, it's going to be, you know, it'll be kind of, what's the word? It'll be too easy or um, it'll kind of be at the top of pop culture land. But this, I thought, was a very a very fine novel uh, and a very uh, sympathetic look at what it looks like to be particularly undocumented in the States 
And, you know, as somebody who was fortunate enough to be born in the United States and to have a mother who's an immigrant, but with her residence card, uh, it really struck me at what it must be like to have all this hope that this country is this beacon um, of possibility and limitlessness and then the reality of what that can look like uh, when you actually get here and have to to be a part of the grind. Uh, I had lots of fun making the playlist. I mixed it up a little bit so I kind of tried to make the playlist uh, match the movement through the story. So we start with some optimism and and you know hustle and tenacity and we have some uh, musing and, you know, wistfulness in the middle. And then we end with some hope. So there you are, not spoiling the book. You know that it does not end with you, like, crying hysterically and being a puddle. So I hope you enjoy the playlist. I think it's no more than eight songs, so it should be no more than half an hour to listen to. As for other things that are making me happy this week... So it's Tuesday. Hmm. Um, I would say, actually, I am really enjoying uh, watching Golden Girls from the beginning. So when I was a kid, I was not allowed to watch it because my mom thought that the innuendo would be too heavy hitting. For the record, it totally went over my head. I went back to watch from season one and I, I thought to myself, is this the same show that I watched with my aunts? When I was, you know, five or six, I had no idea what was going on. It is hilarious. And since I'm in my mid-30s now and single, it particularly resonates with me uh, because I see lots of people in my day-to-day work who are in this demographic. And honestly, I only, you know, I guess 20 years away from it, uh, that it's really profound to me how these women just decided they were going to to do things their own way and be unapologetic and as snarky as all get out. And so if you have not watched The Golden Girls, I encourage you to do so from the beginning and work your way all the way through, uh, particularly because the neuro nerded me. So the first episode of season one, you find out why Sophia, who's Dorothy's mom, has no filter. I always thought she was just a crotchety old lady, but it's because she had a stroke. She had a stroke that impacted her kind of inhibition sites. And so because of that, she's completely disinhibited. And she'll tell you that at the very beginning, uh, or Dorothy will remind everyone, you know, mom can't, can't filter. So that's why she says such crazy things throughout the whole like series. So I, I find that even more funny. Um, so it's great. It gives me a lot of joy. Um, I do want to just say, because of course, anyone who's been keeping up with the news today, um, would have seen two things. One, the volcanoes in Guatemala, which are devastating and something to be thinking about and ways to help and give. Um, make that three things. The, the realization of the larger death toll in Puerto Rico after the hurricane, which is a travesty. And third, the sadness of the, the death of Kate Spade. Um, I, you know, of course, don't know this woman, but I loved her designs and her fashion, and she seemed like someone who was full of lots of joy. And so, you know, we just don't ever know what people are going through. 
um, this ties into Behold the Dreamers, actually. It is very imperative that we lead with kindness and compassion because things are not always as they seem. And so, without further ado, have a good week, folks. was another episode of the Petite Polymath by Brit Stone. All thoughts and ideas were hers, profound or not so profound.